0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at stratacons.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIconf.com. In this episode of the Data Show, I speak with Fabian Yamaguchi. He's the chief scientist at a new startup called ShiftLeft.io. His 2015 PhD thesis sketched out how the combination of static analysis, graph mining, and machine learning can be used to develop tools to augment security analysts. These are part of a general trend of using machine learning to develop and manage the software systems of tomorrow. And Fabian's work is step one in this direction. How can we use machine learning to reduce the number of security vulnerabilities in the complex software products we are producing? I hope you enjoyed the episode. Fabian Yamaguchi, Chief Scientist at ShiftLeft.io. Welcome to the Data Show. Hello. You have a very interesting background, former academic, but also worked as a security consultant and vulnerability researcher before you went to graduate school. So, But clearly you're uh, a domain expert in the area of security. So by way of introduction, what was your prior industry experience before you went and got your PhD?
1: While I was studying, uh, I actually worked uh, part-time as a um, security consultant and vulnerability researcher uh, at a company called Recurity Labs. And um, essentially uh, what they would do is uh, they would take a look at products of companies and uh, see if they could find uh, security issues with those products uh, before they would be uh, launched to the public. And, uh, yeah, my job was essentially uh, to find vulnerabilities in software. And, you know, that would be uh, both uh, web applications, uh, but also um, like uh, binary code. So sometimes we would have source code, sometimes we wouldn't, stuff like that.
0: But your uh, your academic interest was also in security. And I looked through some of your publications and I actually even have a copy of your PhD dissertation. So describe a little bit at a kind of at a generally accessible level, uh, what was your PhD dissertation about?
1: So actually during that time when I was working uh, at Recurity, uh, I found that a lot of the things that we do there can partially be automated. So you can never really automate all of this, but there were so many reoccurring tasks um, as you were looking at code and so many uh, patterns that arise that I was thinking, hey, you know, let's go back to university and try to build uh, the kind of tooling and methods, you know, that I would have liked to have uh, while I was uh, working as a security consultant. So um, essentially the two topics that I brought together uh, were um, machine learning on the one side and then code analysis for uncovering bugs in software on the other. Uh, And um, the dissertation is about applying unsupervised machine learning for finding uh, bugs in code.
0: For our listeners who aren't familiar with finding bugs in code, uh, what does that mean from a machine learning perspective? Are you analyzing semi-structured text?
1: Right, so um, we're actually going to talk a lot about this. I think when we talk about the code property graph later on uh, in the show. In the beginning, I would actually uh, look at the code as if it were text. So I tried some some typical things uh, you would use in, in NLP uh, like uh, latent semantic indexing. But then uh, it soon became clear that you know this is actually structured data, and um, if you want uh, the machine uh, to actually be able to Reason about the structured data and about flow in this code, then you're going to uh, need to first uh, transform this code into some representation that uh, allows you to actually reason about those properties. And so, I would say the the biggest challenge here was actually the feature extraction stage, where the question is how do you get from the code to uh, vectors that the machine learning algorithm uh, can then operate on.
0: So when you, when you use the word automation, that's uh, definitely familiar to our listeners, because nowadays, of course, with the uh, resurgence of AI, there's a lot of talk about automation. And uh, in fact, yesterday I was talking to a friend who applies AI for industrial automation. So kind of this hot, really high-end uh, industrial equipment and machinery that humans tune they're developing uh, AI technologies that can automatically tune these technologies. So when you th- when you use the word automation, how complex are the tasks that you're attempting to automate?
1: Uh, so I was uh, not trying to build something that would just automatically take the code and give you all of the vulnerabilities. Instead, uh, I was looking at the typical kind of tasks that uh, I would encounter myself when doing these uh, security audits. And I would ask myself, uh, how can I automate these subtasks? So um, uh, as an example, when you find a vulnerability in code, uh, the question often arises whether there are similar vulnerabilities still in that code. And that's one of those subtasks that you can automate well, uh, because what you're actually doing is you're saying, um, hey, here's an example of what a bug looks like. Can you scan the rest of the code? Can you use uh, machine learning to actually determine other locations in the code that implement the same bug?
0: So in that example, you may only require a few or even one example and then you do you just do some kind of pattern extraction?
1: Right. So of course it's always um, you know in machine learning you never have enough data. In this case, this was actually uh, uh, an unsupervised approach. So you're taking all of the functions that you can get. And what you'll do is uh, you'll extract uh, the dominant programming patterns in there. And then uh, you just take one of those functions and say, uh, you know, nearby, what are the, what are the functions that uh, share dominant programming patterns? It's a bit like what you would do to find similar text documents, but it's used for code.
0: Interesting, interesting. And then uh, I would imagine uh, that generally the ideas that you developed in your uh, PhD dissertation, they don't really depend on the underlying programming language.
1: Uh, no, they don't. So I did all of this on uh, C and on PHP code, so that I would have two languages that are uh, different. Uh, so C for C will give you a, a, a typed language that's very low level. Uh, used to implement system code, and then PHP, you know, a high-level language where um, everything is rather dynamic and it's used for web applications. And so to kind of see that um, this approach is generic, um, I I tried those two languages.
0: So generally, uh, Fabian, with something like this, what is your benchmark, right? So in other words, so if you look at, I guess, some of these perception tasks in AI, you can say, well, my benchmark will be how well does human being do or how well do the previous algorithms do so what kinds of systems are you trying to beat
1: yeah so evaluation of vulnerability discovery methods is really hard so what we would typically do is first of all we would create some experiments on ground truth meaning that we would carry out these tasks manually. So for example, we would take a bug and then analyze all of the code manually and look at the locations that would implement the same bug. And then we would really measure how good are we at finding those locations. But then, you know, that's kind of artificial. So what we also would do is uh, just take different code and try to use this in practice. And um, we would use open source code to try to identify uh, vulnerabilities in real code bases. And so um, if you look at the the papers, um, there will always be these two sections. So ground truth, controlled experiment, so to say, and then there's a real world experiment where we go out there and actually try to find bugs and also report those bugs to the vendors.
0: Before we delve in further into the uh, technology you've been working on recently, you recently joined a startup founded by some friends of mine called ShiftLeft.io. And you recently described your work over the past year as shifting code analysis from the laptop to the cluster. So what do you mean by that? So in particular, uh, what do you mean by that for our non-security expert audience?
1: Right. So I think with code, uh, it's, uh, it's the same as with all of the other data out there. It just gets more and more every day. Um, And what we want to do from that is uh, we want to extract as much information as we can. And I think when it comes to code, since we depend on this code to work correctly, uh, what we're really interested in is finding bugs in that code, finding things that go wrong, uh, and in particular vulnerabilities, uh, because they will allow other people to uh, essentially steal your data. So today, what people do is um, they take one application at a time, and then usually that application uh, will be analyzed on uh, the consultant's laptop. And uh, they will get a listing of things to look at and browse through that listing. And when they're done, they throw that information away. Uh, you know, and that was your use of um, code analysis. And I was thinking, given that this becomes more and more, wouldn't it be nice to kind of accumulate the knowledge that you have about the code and um, move this away from the um, analyst's laptop and onto kind of like a big code analysis platform, like a, a cluster So it's kind of like uh, you could say... uh, So
0: when you say a cluster, uh, that implies uh, you want big compute and big storage. So are we talking a lot of uh, data here?
1: Yes, we're talking a lot of data here. And um, that's essentially one of the problems that you have with the program analysis Um, You have a lot of data, that's one thing. And the other is that the uh, kind of um, computation... So uh, for
0: those of us who aren't in this field, why is there a lot of data? Let's say I have a uh, uh, computer program uh, with, I don't know, I'm just going to make this up, Fabian, uh, like 20,000 lines of code. So then what is the resulting data set that you have to analyze?
1: So in the end, the vulnerabilities that we're looking for, they are paths inside a program. And so you can think that uh, with each if block that you introduce, you actually double the number of paths through your program. So you're looking at an exponential number of paths in that code. And so yeah, you you essentially have a huge playground of data, a huge amount of uh, data to scan. And that kind of brings you to the point where if you want to do that on a laptop, um, you're very limited in what you can explore. So that also is a, is a reason to kind of move it away from a laptop and uh, you know go towards real computers.
0: So the move from academia to the startup, so in the startup you started the developing kind of distributed computation tools.
1: Uh, right, yes, but um, I did not really have the infrastructure available. These are all things that we can now do with a startup that uh, in the university it was more like, okay, you know, this would work if we were to put it onto multiple machines. Uh, but we never actually did that.
0: So you uh, recently wrote a a post, and I will make sure I link to it in the post accompanying this uh, podcast episode, about uh, semantic code property graphs and security profiles. So let's dive into each of these terms. So first of all, what's the relationship between code and graphs?
1: If you look at the initial problem of essentially doing machine learning on code, then what you want to do is you want to extract some sort of properties of the code uh, that you can then reason about. And uh, that leads you straight towards looking at how people analyze code. And uh, what I looked at was how do compilers analyze code. And what you'll see is that uh, they take the code and they will first transform this code into graph data structures. So graph meaning uh, nodes are connected by edges. and uh, There are a bunch of different uh, data structures used uh, in compilation, and each of those data structures kind of highlights different properties of the code. And so by transforming the code into a graph, you can actually extract different properties from that code by analyzing the graph.
0: This is where uh, I think some of our listeners at least are on familiar territory. So what sort of sizes are these graphs in terms of nodes and edges?
1: Let's take a smaller function um, that might have one if block. Then what would happen is one of the graph structures that's first generated is called an abstract syntax tree. So that's a tree uh, that you get by just parsing the code. And now you can imagine for each language element you have in that code. So for each if and for each variable in there, for each statement, there's going to be a node. For each operator, like if there's an assignment, there's also going to be a node. And they're all connected by edges. So, um, yeah, you you soon run into a lot of nodes and edges. So you have about, like, if you take something like, let's say, the the Linux kernel, you'll have several uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, nodes.
0: So what kinds of algorithms, graph algorithms, come into play? So is it kind of similar to the graph algorithms that someone who is working in, uh, I don't know, social network analysis? Uses.
1: Right. So you can do a lot uh, by essentially solving reachability problems in these graphs. Another thing that you'll often do is you will try to calculate uh, what's it called equilibria on, on that graph. So you will do like fixed point iterations uh, until something converges. But yeah, a, a lot uh, will simply be um, essentially breadth first, depth first uh, search in that graph to solve reachability problems. So uh,
0: data scientists and data engineers are have become in recent times much more well-versed, for example, with the DAGs, right? So directed acyclic graphs that represent data flows and, and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so uh, is that kind of a, another good way to think about this?
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, there are different representations, uh, but uh, DAGs definitely play a role here.
0: So those are graphs. So what are semantic? Code property
1: graphs. Let me first explain what a code property graph is and then add that uh, semantic uh, in the end. So, since I wanted to look at different properties of this code, I would generate all sorts of different representations and then essentially write them to disk, read them in again, try to correlate those and extract different features. And uh, that soon um, ran into a lot of problems. So, I had a lot of problems with memory and a lot of uh, problems just trying to correlate those uh, data structures. So then the question I asked myself was, uh, how do other people deal with large graphs? And so I ran across graph databases. And uh, in graph databases, the... Oh, by the, the way, uh,
0: just a side note, they're back. They're, I mean, uh, they're, it's, a, it's a great uh, uh, hot topic again, graph databases.
1: Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy about that because uh, this whole movement has given me the, the kind of tools for code analysis, uh, probably without knowing that this could be used for code analysis. Yeah, and so um, graph databases, the underlying um, data structure they use, uh, it's many of those use so-called property graphs. So uh, what a property graph is, it's just a, a graph where on the nodes and on the edges, you can essentially attach a little uh, dictionaries, so key value pairs. Um, and you can label the edges. And so the idea was, hey, can't we take uh, the different graph representations of code and merge them into a joint property graph? Because if we can do that, then we can actually import that into a graph database, and then all of the tooling that's available for analyzing uh, graphs in a graph database, and all the the languages that are there, can be actually used for code analysis. Uh, Yeah, and that's the idea of the code property graph. So the code property graph merges existing program representations into a property graph um, so that then you can analyze it using the graph database tooling.
0: So then uh, have you been surprised by the types of bugs and vulnerabilities that this approach has surfaced? In other words, uh, if you did not use this approach, were there like hidden bugs that would be lurking?
1: I think the kind of bugs that we found were rather typical. Uh, but I was surprised by the uh, let's say elegance by which you can formulate these um, well essentially queries to expose these bugs. Uh, so suddenly you could you could talk about the code. Um, you could more or less t- translate a verbal description of what you would be looking for something like I want to call to this function and then there's a data flow to another function and there's a missing check you could really translate that into a query and then find all the locations in the code um, that would implement this bug. Um, And so we used this on the Linux kernel uh, in in the initial paper on the code property graph, and we were actually able to find 18 vulnerabilities uh, which were also confirmed by the developers. So yeah, this was really, really nice to see.
0: So what about this uh, notion of a security profile? What do you mean by that?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, So for security profiles, well, the code property graph, uh, you can formulate all sorts of queries, but nobody really tells you what to ask for. And uh, so formulating these queries requires some domain expert. So somebody who's, uh, who knows what to look for, code to uncover vulnerabilities. And um, if you want to actually make this technology available to customers, you know, then you can't be assuming that they will have a person to craft these kind of queries. So what we did was, we ask ourselves, can we maybe uh, craft queries for them and essentially take the results of all of those queries and summarize them in a profile that will tell you just by looking at the profile, all of the security relevant uh, flows inside of the application. And to go one step further, a big problem you have with security is that uh, it's very dependent on the context. So what that means is let's say there's a string and if that takes on a particular value, then the program crashes. It depends a lot on whether the attacker actually controls that string to see if that's a vulnerability or not. And so there needs to be some kind of way for people from the outside to specify where the attacker sits, how this program fits into the overall infrastructure that um, the, the customer is running. And so in the end, what we implemented was um, we allowed to specify a policy. And this policy that kind of says something about how does the program uh, interface with the outside world, uh, this policy is translated into uh, queries. Uh, the queries are run and um, the uh, results of these will, be, um, will tell you about where the sensitive data leak, um, where are potential vulnerabilities in this code. And all of that is summarized in the security profile.
0: So what knowledge level or what domain expertise is needed to craft these policies?
1: So in the beginning, we provide a default policy that will, for commonly used uh, libraries, um, make assumptions about where the attacker is sitting, um, how data is uh, correctly encrypted or escaped. Um, But uh, then in the end, uh, if people uh, want to uh, tune this for their needs, Uh, what they need to know is on what interfaces does my program talk to the outside world? So for example, maybe they are exposing a REST API or um, HTTP handlers, and then essentially need to say, this is where data comes in from an untrusted person. And if that is defined, then the REST is done by our system.
0: The things that you described, the way I interpret it, is it's kind of a batch process, right? So, in other words, I write a program and then it gets analyzed. But to what to what extent would it be possible, Fa- Fabian, in the future, for it to be much more real time? In other words, I'm I'm writing a program and you're giving me hints. So, no, 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 don't do that.
1: Uh, I see. So, kind of integration with the yeah, IDE with, with
0: an IDE. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's perfectly possible in the future. So the way we've uh, implemented uh, implemented this now is that it interacts with your build server. So every time that you make a build, it will tell you uh, you what kind of changes you made um, that are probably security critical, um, how the profile of your your application has changed. Right now, we do all of this computation. We have the entire graph in RAM. So um, it would be possible um, to place this inside the IDE, but right now we don't do that. So, um, yeah, there's nothing really limiting us from placing it in the IDE, but it's currently not the insertion point we were looking at.
0: So uh, what does it take to onboard a programming language into your tools? In other words, if I invent a new programming language today, will your tool automatically work?
1: So that's where the semantic semantic core property graph comes into play. Once we had published the code property graph, what happened was that uh, people would create code property graphs for different languages. And um, they were all kind of similar, but not really the same. And so we invested a lot of work into seeing how we could come up with one language-neutral representation of the code property graph. And and that's what we call the semantic code property graph. What it would take now is that you um, can describe all of the elements of your programming language as um, instructions. And for each of these instructions, you would need to provide a semantic that tells our analysis platform how this instruction works in terms of data flow. So for example, if you have an addition, then, um, so A plus B, then if either A or B are attacker controlled, then the result is attacker controlled. Um, That would be a kind of semantic. And if you provide those for your instructions, then it works.
0: The things we've been talking about, as I understand it, fall under the umbrella of static program analysis. Yes, which is you're analyzing software without actually executing the program. And then there's another branch called dynamic analysis, where you're analyzing a program that's executing. Right. I guess uh, I'm kind of ignorant about the utility and the importance of static and dynamic, can you put them in context for someone who's not in
1: security? Sure. So you can think of static analysis as an exploration process. So you see all of the code. You might even see code that's not really used or um, uh, code that, that does not essentially matter But you will see all of the code, and so you can tell where bugs are without actually uh, encountering those bugs uh, during runtime, so when the program runs. On the other hand, you have dynamic analysis, and with dynamic analysis, you don't really explore the program much, but anything that you encounter will happen for real. So a lot of people are looking at how to combine static and dynamic analysis because they both have their strengths. So with static analysis, you see more, and with dynamic analysis, you're actually sure about what you see. And so what we did now uh, at Shift Left is we're using the static analysis to find interesting paths, interesting flows in your application, but you know, they might not be worth uh, e- even if those are vulnerabilities, they might not be worth patching simply because there are not enough resources to, to, uh, to patch all of the bugs. But if we can also see at runtime that this is actually happening, so with dynamic analysis, then you know, there's an extra incentive to actually patch those bugs. And so that's how we combine those two approaches. We take the static analysis to inform the runtime and then actually detect whether these things are being exploited
0: Uh, Yeah, uh, because at least wearing my hat as a machine learning person, right? So uh, you develop a machine learning model, it works well, and then you deploy it to production, it starts decaying, or worse, it gets attacked by adversaries. So in in some ways, you don't really know the behavior of your model until you put it out there. And actually, uh, Fabian, uh, nowadays, people are actually even thinking that you know, maybe your entire modeling process begins when you deploy it to production because the libraries for developing models have gotten so easy, you can easily develop a model. But it's really what happens in the wild that's challenging.
1: Yes, I agree. And I also think that the information that we see in the wild could be communicated back to the static side to actually improve the model that we have there.
0: And so looking ahead to uh, just... This general area—it seems—it it seems super interesting to me that the amount of information that's, I guess, embedded inside code. Is there any other analogous area where you you think this kind of uh, uh, ideas may apply?
1: Which ideas do you mean exactly? You, you
0: mean j- just basically this uh, 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 pattern analysis?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I, not guess, sure. <laughs> I guess
0: with code, I guess with code, there is a, a, you can create this property graph, right? And then uh, that allows you to do impute a lot of information, right? So
1: yeah, I'm actually thinking of it differently, more in the sense of there are all these methods out there that are used to, you know, for example, analyze chemical po- uh, compounds or well, all sorts of different applications that uh, have graphs. And I guess what I've done here is taken these methods and um i checked how we could apply those to code analysis um, that's kind of the direction right
0: cool so uh this has been great and very educational very eye-opening in many ways in some ways kind of an interesting application of machine learning to an area that is right in front of us in many ways as, as people who also write code machine learning people right yeah <laughs> so
1: yeah that's true.
0: <laughs> well. Uh, Thank you again.
1: Thank you, too. Uh, It was great uh, to have the chance to talk here.
0: You can follow Fabian Yamaguchi on Twitter at FabX00. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.